Chapters 11 and 12 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 11. The next morning saw Theobald in his rooms, coaching a pupil, and the Miss Allabys, in the eldest Miss Allabys' bedroom, playing at cards with Theobald for the stakes. The winner was Christina, the second unmarried daughter, then just twenty-seven years old, and therefore four years older than Theobald. The younger sisters complained that it was throwing a husband away to let Christina try and catch him, for she was so much older that she had no chance. But Christina showed fight in a way not usual with her, for she was by nature yielding and good-tempered. Her mother thought it better to back her up, so the two dangerous ones were packed off then and there on visits to friends some way off, and those alone allowed to remain at home whose loyalty who can be depended upon. The brothers did not even suspect what was going on, and believed their father's getting assistance was because he really wanted it. The sisters who remained at home kept their words, and gave Christina all the help they could, for over and above their sense of fair play, they reflected that the sooner Theobald was landed, the sooner another deacon might be sent for who might be won by themselves. So quickly was all managed that the two unreliable sisters were actually out of the house before Theobald's next visit, which was on the Sunday following his first. This time Theobald felt quite at home in the house of his new friends, for so Mrs. Allaby insisted that he should call them. She took, she said, such a motherly interest in young men, especially in clergymen. Theobald believed every word she said, as he had believed his father and all his elders from his youth up. Christina sat next to him at dinner and played her cards no less judiciously than she had played them in her sister's bedroom. She smiled, and her smile was one of her strong points, whenever he spoke to her. She went through all her little artlessnesses, and set forth all her little wares in what she believed to be their most taking aspect. Who can blame her? Theobald was not the ideal she had dreamed of when reading Byron upstairs with her sisters, but he was an actual within the bounds of possibility, and after all, not a bad actual as actuals went. What else could she do? Run away? She dared not. Marry beneath her and be considered a disgrace to her family? She dared not. Remain at home and become an old maid and laughed at? Not if she could help it. She did the only thing that could reasonably be expected. She was drowning. Theobald might be only a straw, but she could catch at him, and catch at him she accordingly did. If the course of true love never runs smooth, the course of true matchmaking sometimes does so. The only ground for complaint in the present case was that it was rather slow. Theobald fell into the part assigned to him more easily than Mrs. Cowie and Mrs. Allaby had dared to hope. He was softened by Christina's winning manners. He admired the high moral tone of everything she said, her sweetness towards her sisters and her father and mother, 
her readiness to undertake any small burden which no one else seemed willing to undertake, her sprightly manners, all were fascinating to one who, though unused to women's society, was still a human being. He was flattered by her unobtrusive but obviously sincere admiration for himself. She seemed to see him in a more favorable light, and to understand him better than anyone outside of this charming family had ever done. Instead of snubbing him, as his father, brother, and sisters did, she drew him out, listened attentively to all he chose to say, and evidently wanted him to say still more. He told a college friend that he knew he was in love now. He really was, for he liked Miss Allaby's society much better than that of his sister's. Over and above the recommendations already enumerated, she had another in the possession of what was supposed to be a very beautiful contralto voice. Her voice was certainly contralto, for she could not reach higher than D in the treble. Its only defect was that it did not go correspondingly low in the bass. In those days, however, a contralto voice was understood to include even a soprano if the soprano could not reach soprano notes, and it was not necessary that it should have the quality which we now assign to contralto. What her voice wanted in range and power was made up in the feeling with which she sang. She had transposed angels ever bright and fair into a lower key so as to make it suit her voice, thus proving, as her mamma said, that she had a thorough knowledge of the laws of harmony. Not only did she do this, but at every pause added an embellishment of arpeggios from one end to the other of the keyboard, on a principle which her governess had taught her. She thus added life and interest to an air which everyone, so she said, must feel to be rather heavy in the form in which Honda left it. As for her governess, she indeed had been a rarely accomplished musician. She was a pupil of the famous Dr. Clark of Cambridge, and used to play the overture to Atalanta, arranged by Mazingi. Nevertheless, it was some time before Theobald could bring his courage to the sticking point of actually proposing. He made it quite clear that he believed himself to be much smitten, but month after month went by, during which there was still so much hope in Theobald, that Mr. Allaby dared not discover that he was able to do his duty for himself, and was getting impatient at the number of half-guineas he was dispersing, and yet there was no proposal. Christina's mother assured him that she was the best daughter in the whole world, and would be a priceless treasure to the man who married her. Theobald echoed Mrs. Allaby's sentiments with warmth, but still, though he visited the rectory two or three times a week, besides coming over on Sundays, he did not propose. "'She is heart-whole yet, dear Mr. Pontifex,' said Mrs. Allaby, one day. "'At least I believe she is. It is not for want of admirers. Oh, no, she has had her full share of these. But she is too, too difficult to please.' I think, however, she would fall before a great and good man. And she looked hard at Theobald, who blushed. But the days went by, and still he did not propose. Another time Theobald actually took Mrs. Cowie into his confidence, and the reader may guess what account of Christina he got from her. Mrs. Cowie tried the jealousy maneuver and hinted 
at a possible rival. Theobald was, or pretended to be, very much alarmed. A little rudimentary pang of jealousy shot across his bosom, and he began to believe with pride that he was not only in love, but desperately in love, or he would never feel so jealous. Nevertheless, day after day still went by, and he did not propose. The Allabys behaved with great judgment. They humored him till his retreat was practically cut off though he still flattered himself that it was open. One day, about six months after Theobald had become an almost daily visitor at the rectory, the conversation happened to turn upon long engagements. "'I don't like long engagements, Mr. Allaby. Do you?' said Theobald imprudently. "'No,' said Mr. Allaby, in a pointed tone. "'Nor long courtships.' and he gave Theobald a look which he could not pretend to misunderstand. He went back to Cambridge as fast as he could, and in dread of the conversation with Mr. Allaby, which he felt to be impending, composed the following letter which he dispatched that same afternoon by a private messenger to Cramsford. The letter was as follows. Dearest Miss Christina, I do not know whether you have guessed the feelings that I have long entertained for you, feelings which I have concealed as much as I could through fear of drawing you into an engagement which, if you enter it, must be prolonged for a considerable time. But, however this may be, it is out of my power to conceal them longer. I love you ardently, devotedly, and send these few lines asking you to be my wife because I dare not trust my tongue to give adequate expression to the magnitude of my affection for you. I cannot pretend to offer you a heart which has never known either love or disappointment. I have loved already, and my heart was years in recovering from the grief I felt at seeing her become another's. That, however, is over, and having seen yourself I rejoice over a disappointment which I thought at one time would have been fatal to me. It has left me a less ardent lover than I should perhaps otherwise have been, but it has increased tenfold my power of appreciating your many charms, and my desire that you should become my wife. Please let me have a few lines of answer by the bearer, to let me know whether or not my suit is accepted. If you accept me, I will at once come and talk the matter over with Mr. and Mrs. Allaby, whom I shall hope one day to be allowed to call father and mother. I ought to warn you that in the event of your consenting to be my wife it may be years before our union can be consummated, for I cannot marry till a college living is offered me. If therefore you see fit to reject me, I shall be grieved rather than surprised. Ever most devotedly yours, Theobald Pontifex. And this was all that his public school and university education had been able to do for Theobald. Nevertheless, for his own part, he thought his letter rather a good one, and congratulated himself in particular upon his cleverness in inventing the story of a previous attachment, behind which he intended to shelter himself if Christina should complain of any lack of fervor in his behavior to her. I need not give Christina's answer, which, of course, was to accept, 
much as Theobald feared old Mr. Allaby, I do not think he would have wrought up his courage to the point of actually proposing, but for the fact of the engagement being necessarily a long one, during which a dozen things might turn up to break it off. However much he may have disapproved of long engagements for other people, I doubt whether he had any particular objection to them in his own case. A pair of lovers are like sunset and sunrise. There are such things every day, but we seldom see them. Theobald posed as the most ardent lover imaginable. But to use the vulgarism for the moment in fashion, it was all sighed. Christina was in love, as indeed she had been twenty times already. But then Christina was impressionable, and could not even hear the name Miss Olonghi mentioned without bursting into tears. When Theobald accidentally left his sermon case behind him one Sunday, she slept with it in her bosom, and was forlorn when she had, as it were, to disgorge it on the following Sunday. But I do not think Theobald ever took so much as an old toothbrush of Christina's to bed with him. Why, I knew a young man once who got hold of his mistress's skates, and slept with them for a fortnight, and cried when he had to give them up. CHAPTER Twelve. Theobald's engagement was all very well as far as it went, but there was an old gentleman with a bald head and rosy cheeks in a counting-house in Paternaster Row, who must sooner or later be told what his son had in view, and Theobald's heart fluttered when he asked himself what view this old gentleman was likely to take of the situation. The murder, however, had to come out, and Theobald, and his intended, perhaps imprudently, resolved on making a clean breast of it at once. He wrote what he and Christina, who helped him to draft the letter, thought to be everything that was filial, and expressed himself as anxious to be married with the least possible delay. He could not help saying this as Christina was at his shoulder, and he knew it was safe, for his father might be trusted not to help him. He wound up by asking his father to use any influence that might be at his command to help him to get a living, inasmuch as it might be years before a college living fell vacant, and he saw no other chance of being able to marry, for neither he nor his intended had any money except Theobald's fellowship, which would, of course, lapse on his taking a wife. Any step of Theobald's was sure to be objectionable in his father's eyes, but that at three-and-twenty he should want to marry a penniless girl who was four years older than himself, afforded a golden opportunity which the old gentleman, for now I may call him, as he was at least sixty, embraced with characteristic eagerness. The ineffable folly, he wrote, on receiving his son's letter, of your fancied passion for Miss Allaby fills me with the gravest apprehensions. Making every allowance for a lover's blindness, I still have no doubt that the lady herself is a well-conducted and amiable young person who would not disgrace our family. But were she ten times more desirable as a daughter-in-law than I can allow myself to hope, your joint poverty is an insuperable objection to your marriage. I have four other children besides yourself, and my expenses do not permit me to save money. 
This year they have been especially heavy. Indeed, I have had to purchase two not inconsiderable pieces of land which happened to come to the market, and were necessary to complete a property which I have long wanted to round off in this way. I gave you an education, regardless of expense, which has put you in possession of a comfortable income, at an age when many young men are dependent. I have thus started you fairly in life and may claim that you should cease to be a drag on me further. Long engagements are proverbially unsatisfactory, and in the present case the prospect seems interminable. What interests, pray, do you suppose I have that I could get a living for you? Can I go up and down the country begging people to provide for my son, because he has taken it into his head to want to get married without sufficient means? I do not wish to write unkindly, nothing can be farther from my real feelings towards you, but there is often more kindness in plain speaking than in any amount of soft words which can end in no substantial performance. Of course I bear in mind that you are of age, and can therefore please yourself, but if you choose to claim the strict letter of the law, and act without consideration for your father's feelings, you must not be surprised if you will one day find that I have claimed a like liberty for myself. Believe me, your affectionate father, G. Pontifex. I found this letter along with those already given, and a few more which I need not give, but throughout which the same tone prevails, and in all of which there is the more or less obvious shake of the will near the end of the letter. Remembering Theobald's general dumbness concerning his father for the many years I knew him after his father's death, there was an eloquence in the preservation of the letters and in their endorsement, letters from my father, which seemed to have with it some faint odor of health and nature. Theobald did not show his father's letter to Christina, nor indeed, I believe, to anyone. He was by nature secretive and had been repressed too much and too early to be capable of railing or blowing off steam where his father was concerned. His sense of wrong was still inarticulate, felt as a dull, dead weight ever-present day by day, and if he woke at night-time still continually present. But he hardly knew what it was. I was about the closest friend he had, and I saw but little of him, for I could not get on with him for long together. He said I had no reverence, whereas I thought that I had plenty of reverence for what deserved to be revered, but that the gods which he deemed golden were in reality made of a baser metal. He never, as I have said, complained of his father to me, and his only other friends were, like himself, staid and prim, of evangelical tendencies, and deeply imbued with a sense of the sinfulness of any act of insubordination to parents. Good young men, in fact, and one could not blow off steam to a good young man. When Christina was informed by her lover of his father's opposition, and of the time which must probably elapse before they could be married, she offered, with how much sincerity I know not, to set him free from his engagement. But Theobald declined to be released, not at least, as he said, at present. Christina and Mrs. Allaby knew they could manage him, and on this not very satisfactory footing the engagement was continued. 
his engagement and his refusal to be released at once raised theobald in his own good opinion dull as he was he had no small share of quiet self-approbation he admired himself for his university distinction for the purity of his life i said of him once that if he had only a better temper he would be as innocent as a new-laid egg and for his unimpeachable integrity in money matters he did not despair for advancement in the church when he had once got a living and of course it was within the bounds of possibility that he might one day become a bishop and christina said she felt convinced that this would ultimately be the case as was natural for the daughter and intended wife of a clergyman christina's thoughts ran much upon religion and she was resolved that even though an exalted position in this world were denied to her and theobald their virtues should be fully appreciated in the next her religious opinions coincided absolutely with theobald's own and many a conversation did she have with him about the glory of god and the completeness with which they would devote themselves to it as soon as theobald had got his living and they were married so certain was she of the great results which would then ensue that she wondered at times at the blindness shown by providence towards its own truest interests in not killing off the rectors who stood between theobald and his living a little faster in those days people believed with a simple downrightness which i do not observe among educated men and women now it had never so much as crossed theobald's mind to doubt the literal accuracy of any syllable in the bible he had never seen any book in which this was disputed nor met anyone who doubted it true there was just a little scare about geology but there was nothing in it if it was said that god made the world in six days why he made it in six days neither in more nor less if it was said that he put adam to sleep took out one of his ribs and made a woman of it why it was so as a matter of course he adam went to sleep as it might be himself theobald pontifex in a garden as it might be the garden at cramsford rectory during the summer months when it was so pretty only that it was larger and had some tame wild animals in it then god came up to him as it might be mr allaby or his father dexterously took out one of his ribs without waking him and miraculously healed the wound so that no trace of the operation remained finally god had taken the rib perhaps into the greenhouse and had turned it into just such another young woman as christina that was how it was done there was neither difficulty nor shadow of difficulty about the matter could not god do anything he liked and had he not in his own inspired book told us that he had done this this was the average attitude of fairly educated young men and women towards the mosaic cosmogony fifty forty or even twenty years ago the combating of infidelity therefore offered little scope for enterprising young clergymen nor had the church awakened to the activity which she has since displayed among the poor in our large towns these were then left almost without an effort at resistance or cooperation to the labors of those who had succeeded wesley missionary work indeed in heathen countries was being carried on with some energy but theobald did not feel any call to be a missionary 
Christina suggested this to him more than once, and assured him of the unspeakable happiness it would be to her to be the wife of a missionary, and to share his dangers. She and Theobald might even be martyred. Of course they would be martyred simultaneously, and martyrdom many years hence, as regarded from the arbor in the rectory garden, was not painful. It would ensure them a glorious future in the next world, and at any rate posthumous renown in this, even if they were not miraculously restored to life again. And such things had happened ere now, in the case of martyrs. Theobald, however, had not been kindled by Christina's enthusiasm, so she fell back upon the Church of Rome, an enemy more dangerous, if possible, than paganism itself. A combat with Romanism might even yet win for her and Theobald the crown of martyrdom. True, the Church of Rome was tolerably quiet just then, but it was the calm before the storm of this she was assured, with a conviction deeper than she could have attained by any argument founded upon mere reason. "'We, dearest Theobald,' she exclaimed, "'will be ever faithful. We will stand firm and support one another even in the hour of death itself. God in his mercy may spare us from being burnt alive. He may or may not do so.' Oh, Lord, and she turned her eyes prayerfully to heaven, spare my Theobald, or grant that he may be beheaded. My dearest, said Theobald gravely, do not let us agitate ourselves unduly. If the hour of trial comes, we shall be best prepared to meet it by having led a quiet, unobtrusive life of self-denial and devotion to God's glory. Such a life let us pray God that it may please him to enable us to pray that we may lead. "'Dearest Theobald,' exclaimed Christina, drying the tears that had gathered in her eyes, "'you are always, always right. Let us be self-denying, pure, upright, truthful in word and deed.' She clasped her hands and looked up to heaven as she spoke. "'Dearest,' rejoins her lover, "'we have ever hitherto endeavoured to be all these things.' We have not been worldly people. Let us watch and pray that we may so continue to the end. The moon had risen and the arbor was getting damp, so they adjourned further aspirations for a more convenient season. At other times Christina pictured herself and Theobald as braving the scorn of almost every human being in the achievement of some mighty task which should redound to the honor of her Redeemer. She could face anything for this. But always toward the end of her vision there came a little coronation scene high up in the golden regions of the heavens, and a diadem was set upon her head by the Son of Man himself, amid the host of angels and archangels who looked on with envy and admiration. And here even Theobald himself was out of it. If there could be such a thing as the mammon of righteousness— Christina would have assuredly made friends with it. Her papa and mamma were very esteemable people, and would in the course of time receive heavenly mansions in which they would be exceedingly comfortable. So doubtless would her sisters. So, perhaps, even might her brothers. But for herself she felt that a higher destiny was preparing, which it was her duty never to lose sight of. The first step towards it would be her marriage with Theobald, in spite, however, of these flights of religious romanticism, 
Christina was a good-tempered, kindly-natured girl enough, who, if she had married a sensible layman, we will say a hotel-keeper, would have developed into a good landlady, and been deservedly popular with her guests. Such was Theobald's engaged life. Many a little present passed between the pair, and many a small surprise did they prepare pleasantly for one another. They never quarrelled, and neither of them ever flirted with anyone else. Mrs. Allaby and his future sisters-in-law idolized Theobald, in spite of its being impossible to get another deacon to come and be played, for as long as Theobald was able to help Mr. Allaby, which now, of course, he did free, gratis, and for nothing. Two of the sisters, however, did manage to find husbands before Christina was actually married, and on each occasion Theobald played the part of decoy elephant. In the end, only two out of the seven daughters remained single. After three or four years, old Mr. Pontifex became accustomed to his son's engagement, and looked upon it as among the things which had now a prescriptive right to toleration. In the spring of 1831, more than five years after Theobald had first walked over to Crampsford, one of the best livings in the gift of the college unexpectedly fell vacant, and was for various reasons declined by the two fellows senior to Theobald, who might each have been expected to take it. The living was then offered to, and of course accepted, by Theobald, being in value not less than five hundred pounds a year, with a suitable house and garden. Old Mr. Pontifex then came down more handsomely than was expected, and settled ten thousand pounds on his son and daughter-in-law for life, with remainder to such of their issue as they might appoint. In the month of July, 1831, Theobald and Christina became man and wife. End of chapter 12 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman.